0: Hello, fellow Blue Earther. Welcome to another podcast. I'm Lauren Esbitt, and today I'm chatting to Maxwell Ayamba. Maxwell is an extremely well-read academic who wanted to talk about almost every book on his shelf. Almost two decades ago, he set up 100 Black Men Walk for Health, a group featured on Channel 4, which inspired the production of the play Black Men Walking. Most recently, he has served on the board of the Ramblers Association and is a member of the Peak District National Park Equality Comprehensive Audit Standards Committee. Maxwell, it's so lovely to have you on the Blue Earth Summit podcast.
1: Thank you, Laura. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet Gareth.
0: So, Maxwell, you moved to the UK when you got a scholarship to study journalism. How was that change how was, how was the change in the in the culture?
1: I grew up in a rural environment where basically, you know, our lives were so connected to the natural world. And so um, that kind of environment, I had that kind of, um, you know, affinity and bond with nature and enjoyed the natural world. And and so nature was literally everything that, you know, I lived for. And then moving here in 96 um, and living in an urban, you know, uh, environment or city, uh, there was that kind of disconnect or uh, dissonance from my, the environment I grew up in. And so that was a big, big change for me. It was a cultural shock.
0: What kind of things did you end up doing that made you feel reconnected to the, to the world?
1: Um, well, fortunately for me, when I moved here, um, I, I studied in, uh, in Cardiff. Um, and, and basically, it was a nice environment in Cardiff. Um, the countryside was great. And so I I had opportunity to, you know, walk in the countryside. So it was was a lot better there uh, in Cardiff uh, until I moved to Sheffield.
0: Since you've moved, since you've lived in the UK, has your kind of thinking on on how important blue and green space changed at all?
1: It has. um, I think in the beginning, the whole concept or notion about blue and green spaces was something that I wasn't used to or I wasn't aware of. Um, because just going back to what I said, due to my upbringing, where literally we grew up, you know, in, you know, in green spaces uh, or blue spaces, to put that way as well. Um, whereas here, um, the way green spaces and blue spaces are perceived, um, you know, if you are not within the countryside or if you don't have opportunity to go to a countryside or go to a the seaside, then the whole concept or notion about green or blue spaces appear to be uh, far removed from you. Um, and and so that was that was the disconnect. Um, and so it t- took time for me to get into that whole uh, notion or concept of green or blue spaces in in, in the UK. Uh, and perhaps that has to do with the fact that uh, my background as um, as um, an environmentalist and having an opportunity to study environmental management and conservation at the university uh, and through my field trips um, gave me that kind of that exposure to the green spaces and the blue spaces. Uh, In that way, made me to um, come to terms with both the cultural and the historical and the ecological history of of the British landscape. Uh, And so that's how I got into it. But people like myself, who haven't got that kind of um, uh, experience or exposure, um, obviously um, wouldn't have that kind of um, knowledge about the blue or green spaces that you are talking about here, Laura.
0: And this might be um, a sensitive question, Maxwell, which... um I'm, I'm happy to address as a white woman asking you, but as a person of colour, what do you think the barriers are when accessing green and blue spaces?
1: Well, again, it goes back to what I said earlier on in terms of the cultural severance that I experience coming here uh, and living in an urbanised environment. Um, you know, I found that, um, you know, minoritised people or people of colour tend not to have that kind of opportunity to um, reconnect with the natural world. Basically, that has to do with my lived experience and also having worked with a lot of North ties people in Sheffield and beyond. Um, and uh, the problem really, Laura, is to do with the fact that, you know, when people migrate um, into this country, whether it's, it's to do political or economic for economic reasons, whatever the reasons, they normally become urbanized, which has become a very historical issue because um, when people are urbanized, um, then obviously they lack that kind of opportunities and privilege, Uh, which obviously is not only minoritized people, but even in in the private white communities um, who were basically, if they are not privileged, then they lack the opportunity to access the greater outdoors. And in that sense, um, their geography is limited to the kind of environment in which they live, not until probably they know someone who is able to take them out to those spaces. So the whole issue of orienteering or navigation in those spaces that are alien to people uh, can be a barrier. And going back to what I have seen again, I'm fortunate because when I, you know, because I did, you know, my studies in the, envir- in the environment, it gave me an opportunity to have the exposure to the wider countryside. Um, and so in that respect, I had that exposure and that knowledge um, and that orienteering and, um, you know, uh, navigation skills, which has helped me really to access those spaces. And then the other problem is to do with the fact that um, those, these spaces are, appear to be white spaces, that's how they are perceived as white spaces. and so people are so concerned about um, you know visiting those spaces, uh, maybe maybe probably fear of racism or probably it's to do with the fact that um, you know um, they don't know what to expect when they get out there. Um, and so they're quite reluctant to venture into those kind of spaces. And so there's um, that kind of notion of racism which um, has always been the issue. And this has always been the problem. And so me working in the working with minoritized groups for a number of years now, what I've come to realize is people are quite keen and interested in going out, but they are quite concerned about what to expect when they go out there.
0: I mean, as someone who used to go to the peak districts, you know, in my school holidays, I don't think I can ever recall seeing a person of color walking you know the mountains at all, but actually, recently in the last couple of years, I've seen an increasing amount of people color, people of color, sorry, and mixed race, you know, outside enjoying it. And I actually think when I see it, it, it fills me with so much joy because it means that the space is changing.
1: Yeah, and um, and just going back to what you said, I mean, when the Black Lives Matter event happened, uh, following the death of George Floyd, eventually what happened was um, they had. Um, some of these uh, right-wing groups uh, hoisted a flag up Ben Nevis, which really was some kind of a very n- nasty words, um, and and then also another flag of uh, wildlife matters was hoisted up Mantor in the Pictish National Park. So all these are indicators that there are some elements of, out there who really don't want to see you know people of colour in the countryside, and just recently uh 30 Muslim hikers during Christmas Day walked up Manto, um and they were described as the wilder beast of the Sarangati. Okay? Um in in some of the comments, uh in social media comments. So so basically what I'm trying to say here is that racism is there. It's just that it's not overt, it's covert, but it doesn't mean that everyone is racist. It's just that there are some some few elements, some few people there who just want to Create that um, notion or that kind of feeling that you know the countryside should be for only white people. But ninety nine percent of white people don't see why people shouldn't walk in the countryside. To be honest with you, it's just just some few people who just who just who want to who just want to cause trouble. That's all. To be honest with you, that's from my experience.
0: From from what you're just saying, are some of those reasons uh, why you set up um, Black Men Walk for Health? The
1: reason for setting up. The 100 black men work for health is just for black men to work for health and well-being reasons. Because black men, when we are young, we're quite active. Uh, but when they get to middle age, they begin to live sedentary lives. Um, and then there were a whole lot of issues, socioeconomic issues, family issues, all our issues. Uh, And mental health is one of the biggest issues within, you know, the black community. And black men normally don't have spaces that they walk, you know, walk freely and talk, except at the barber shops where they go to, you know, to um, have their hair cut or that kind of thing. And so we felt that creating a space where people can walk freely and talk uh, and bond, you know, uh, was something that was important. So that's why it was called 100 Black Men, because we're hoping that we'll have 100 black men walking at one time in the countryside. Um, but as we speak, as I speak, we have about almost 100, but they are not black men, it's not a mixture, men and women and young people and um, other people of color. So it is no longer called a 100 black men, it's now called Work for Health. When we set up 100 black men, work for Health, um, which inspired the production of the national play, Black Men Walking, uh, which was staged by Royal and um, Eclipse Theatre Production in 2018 and 2019. I don't know whether you've seen the play or not, uh, but the play became a popular hit across the whole of the UK. All theatres were full um, just to watch why black men were walking the countryside. So apparently, we didn't know that certain of the black men walking was a political statement that black people also had the right to walk in the English countryside. And so that kind of contestation of the of the rural space or the English countryside was something that we didn't know. Um, because we just set up, we just felt walk and talk. That was literally the, the motto for setting up the, the, the working group. But apparently, um, it was sending a message that, you know, we were staking a claim to the countryside, which our ancestors have walked before. Um, dating back to the Roman Empire, several uh, Septimus, the Black Roman Empire and his army home march on the on the road in uh, the Roman road in, uh, in the Peak District National Park. Um, and then we had black people. We had um, the black to-dos, We have uh, black Amos. um, And then we also had um, enslaved people. And we have, um, you know, people fought in the Second World War uh, and the First World War. All these people have not been written into the landscape of the British countryside. And and so, you know, because they've not been written into the countryside, into the history of the countryside, um, and, uh, people think that you know, it's only the wind rush was the first time black people came to England. Um, and therefore, seeing people walk in the countryside is quite novel. But that is not the issue. Because, I mean, if you read Corinne Fowler's book, uh, The Green Unpleasant Land, where she talks much about, you know, the, um, you know, how national trust properties are linked to enslaved people, you find a lot of people, uh, black people have been in the English countries and contributed to the English countryside. It's just that that history has never been written and that is why the play actually uh was trying to project the idea that black people have been in in england and have worked in the countryside for for centuries it's not not it's nothing new it's just that um they've not been written into a history uh of the english countryside
0: mm, mm. I watched your um, 2021, sorry, National Lottery video this morning on YouTube. And I thought I I found myself nodding to all of it as if what you were saying, I was like, yes, I agree in that I agree with this. And um, one of the things that you said was that, you know, a lot of people have mental health problems, but they don't just have mental health problems, they've got physical health problems as well. So, you know, what can you do to mitigate that? And you were talking about the natural health surface, you know, that people can have access access to the environment and I thought you know I've never heard anyone call you know access to the environment as national health service but you're absolutely right you know the environment is everywhere it's nationally and people should be able to access it.
1: Yeah um, and that's because um, and basically it goes back to your first question Laura um, where about my where I came from originally that had we have that kind of biocentric view of nature where we feel everyone is part of nature but having moved here I found that nature is more anthropogenic um where basically people try to move themselves out of nature or try to uh think they're not part of nature. Uh, 2 weeks ago I was in the House of Parliament to give a speech on um nature recovery. Um I was invited by Natural England and in my speech I said the same thing which you read you might have read from my website uh about the fact that um everyone is part of nature um and and not until we accept that notion that we are part of nature then you know we will always have the problems we we have now and if you look at the current government policy where they've launched what they call the green social prescribing which basically is aimed at getting people away from prescriptive medication to towards people using um what they call it um the outdoor environment nature as an alternative for Things like mental health, depression, and all those kind of things, because literally when people are out in, in in the natural world, they feel so relaxed, so happy, because that's where they belong. That is where they feel happy when they are out there walking in in, in the natural world. And when people are, when people are living in the cities, they, they, it's just like it's like a war zone. Um, they don't feel happy these days in society. There's loneliness. Then um, there's also uh, issues of ill health, like diabetes, name it, all those kind of things. So the Natural Health Service is addressing our mental health, our physical health, and then our community health in terms of just working with friends or people and talking. It's, it's such, a, it's such a, it's a, it's a healing process. So nature is quite spiritual in that way. And in summer, everyone feels happy and um, excited. But when it's in winter and the weather looks gloomy, people look gloomy and sad. Okay? <laughs> so that just tells how nature has an impact on our well-being and on on our mood. And when we talk of nature, we're not talking of only the outdoor, we're talking about the cosmos as well. That is, you know, the sun, the moon, it's all intertwined. That's what I describe as web of life. And so when I talk because if you when I talk about natural health service, it's like vitamin D deficiency is quite a big issue especially in, um, you know, in minoritized communities because, of, because we are tropical beings. And not having exposure to the sun can be very, very um, uh, bad for people who have got uh, low D uh, unless you are on medication. And so you see the sun plays a very big part in our well-being. And having the opportunity to go out and walk, you know, um, helps your health, your, your well-being. So that's why I use the Natural Health Service,
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I think walking on concrete versus walking on grass, especially if I was barefoot, I know which one I would prefer. and just linking back to what you were saying about wider wider problems in society about health um a very personal experience um for me you know in my teenage years I I had an eating disorder and I was really poorly and uh when I was 20 I I went into a private healthcare center um and I and I did I went on drugs I went on antidepressants and I and I came out um You know, and I had still had a lot of hard work ahead of me. Um, but I remember feeling in the end, I felt really numb from, from the medication that I was on. Um, and I, you know, had a discussion with my GP and I decided to come off it. And what I decided to do was actually spend a lot more time outdoors. And almost, I think that was like nine years ago now and almost nine years on. Um, I'm glad I make that, I made that choice. It's not the right choice for everybody. Um, but now the majority of my social life and my social groups are groups that are connected to outdoor activity in some way Um, and I think that that is something that people need to recognize is that they need to be able to tap into communities that spend time outdoors and build those relationships because it's not just about you know enjoying the sunshine it's about the human connection you know building friendships finding value in those friendships and you know, enjoying enjoying the outdoors together, going on adventures.
1: You're right, there, Laura. And at the end of the day, I mean, the, all the people I've been working with, the same thing they'll tell you in terms of just having that kind of um, relationship with people in, in in the natural world, where they feel so connected to the natural world and to people as well. And and um, and when they when when they tell you that as, once they leave, they go outdoors in the countryside, they tend to forget about everything
0: right <laughs> yeah that, that's so true yeah um,
1: they feel in a different a different world so the realm of the natural the natural environment is so powerful um you know that me- which basically tells us that we are all part of nature really um because people have actually left antidepressant because it hasn't actually solved the problem because basically it's, it just completely masks the problem it doesn't solve the problem what's really solved the problem it's finding uh, what you call it uh, your true self and your true self can be found in the, in the natural world where you feel connected and bonded you have that affinity with nature and with friends um, and then you enjoy that environment. I think that's what really makes us human, but I think because we live in a, a in a modern world, modernism have changed the whole notion around people and nature, and so people become disconnected with from nature and that's why you find out that even though people are people may have all the material wealth. But still, the lack. Miserable inside.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I don't think wealth guarantees happiness. I think what guarantees happiness is your ability to um, love and appreciate other human beings and 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 the natural world. You know, you find that even one of these days in hospital, they take dogs there where patients yeah. use yeah. they use dogs as a kind of therapy. So this kind of um this kind of therapeutic way of overcoming some of the illnesses that we have or the isolation that we have just tells us that nature is so powerful. But I think because we've divorced ourselves from the natural world, it's why mental health has now become, is on the increase. Because in workplaces, people are so stressed up and depressed because of the kind of jobs they do because they are like robots. And if you, I don't have you read um uh, Shoemaker's uh, Small is Beautiful?
0: No, I haven't. What's that book about?
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, he shoemaker was talking about how uh, commercial uh, industrialization is going to ruin the lives of people and that people people become robots, tools of production, and that's and that's and that's not gonna, going to guarantee happiness. That's what that's what small is beautiful was all about. It was talking about how industrialization is destroying our humanity as a whole, and um and then the other issue that you have to take into account is how climate change is impacting um, what we call. Un- uh, what do you call it, uh, eco-anxiety, which is leading to a lot of people being so worried about about the future. So there's a lot happening. And the more nature we lose, the more we lose our happiness because, I mean, like I said, without nature, we don't have happiness. Uh, and so there was even um, a research that was done found that patients recover faster when they're exposed to green spaces.
0: Out of all the knowledge you've accumulated over the years is that as a result of your masters in science and doing a phd or is that just because you know you're so interested in it that one thing has led to the other and you've just built up all this extremely useful but also really beneficial knowledge for other people's lives
1: before i answer that question uh so <laughs> that you might be interested in uh that's about your Colborn. Diane Domanski. This is an, and John Peterson Myers. Um, I was told in future, and, and this is a scientific book, which talks about how um what you call it um our genes are being destroyed by the toxins that gets into the food chain that we eat. So now going back to your your question, um, I think um I'm an ecocentrist, um. And ecocentrists tend to be very keen in terms of understanding why our very existence is in this world. Why do we live in this world? What is our purpose in this world? And so much of my work as an ecocentrist and also as an environmental journalist is, is purely ethnographic uh, and also eth- autoethnographic, which basically is to do with my lived experience. Uh, and then with ethnography, is to do with working with people and understanding the issues that they um, have experienced in their daily lives. Uh, I'll give you a good example. I took a group of Southeast Asian women on a walk in the Pigness National Park, uh, the Moorland Discovery Center. I don't know whether you know there or not, um, but such a beautiful landscape. Uh, and one of the women who has never spoken approached me and said, and spoke in English, and said, thank you so much. I'm so happy that you brought me here. It's taking me back to my home in, in Pakistan. That's how my, this place looks like, my village in Pakistan. Meanwhile, she's been living in England for, for over 30 years, right? Um, I've taken a group of Bangladeshi women fishing, course fishing, and they've never been fishing in this country. These activities are You're privileged. If you are not privileged, you can't participate in some of these activities, right? And so my experience working with people, I've learned a lot from people. People have taught me a lot about nature, um, their relation, because you have to understand that every culture have got a different perception of nature, the way they see nature, what nature is to them. And that's why it's wrong to to sort of like for one culture to load its culture on another culture. People have to be have the freedom to express themselves, what they think about nature, what nature is is to them. And so much of the work I do is to give people that freedom of choice to appreciate nature in whatever way they want to appreciate nature. And so, and that also includes with part of my, um, my academic work, um, which obviously is reviewing other literatures um, and looking at emerging scholarship in that area of of uh, research in terms of how nature impacts on the health and well-being of people, but also to look at things around um, environmental justice and then probably race and ecology as well. And so much of the work I do is also to use citizen science as a way of creating what we mean by um, active citizenship or, or state worship, where people can be empowered um, using um, ordinary you know, means or participatory methods, to put it that way. I'll give you a good example, case study. Air pollution is one of the biggest issues in the communities that we work in, not only in, in Sheffield, but across the country. And people who live in polluted environments are oblivious to the air debriefing. But that said, you can't, air is not something that you can box it in. It mm-hmm. just explodes everywhere. What we do is we use natural indicators like lichens, and lichens are an indicator of air pollution, and it thrives very much along busy roads. you will see it it's yellow in color and so when you have more when you see more of the xantora lichen, the levels of air pollution there is very very heavy and so using natural indicators helps help the participants to understand the kind of environment they live in and so even though they have no choice, they still have to live in that environment. but what happens is they are able to go walking in spaces that are less polluted and into the wider countryside. And so it helps them really in terms of, you know, the amount of pollution they have to breathe in every time. And people learn about these things. But also it's a way of socializing. It's a way of um, discovering new environments. It's a way of appreciating nature. It's a way of appreciating others. It's a way of developing friendships. It's a way of addressing exclusion and loneliness. So, there's um, there's a whole way way that you can bring communities together by working with them and empowering them and helping them to co produce that knowledge that you want to bring about a transformation in the lives of people. It's not only money, but then making people feel valued and making people have that kind of sense of belonging to that space. Because, again, spaces can be very threatening or welcoming. So it's how you make spaces more welcoming to people, then people can go there to do spaces on their own. And so that's that's much of the research I do. And uh, so I do both theory and practical work. Um, And with this, it gives me a whole lot of um, um, knowledge in terms of how people in grassroots communities perceive nature, how they can be empowered, how they can be supported, to be able to live you know um more qualitative lives um than just waiting on on government or um you know you know other things so that's 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 what I do to be honest with you Laura
0: you're an absolute library of knowledge
1: um you have you heard of the landscape review
0: uh, No, I haven't heard of that
1: well so so basically the landscape review was launched in two thousand and nineteen. That's called yeah. they call the Julian Glover Review of Landscapes. And basically it's look at how lands, how the people, they can reconnect people to, to, to natural world. Um, and so much of it is linked to what they call the government 25 year environment plan, which was launched in 2018, um, which aims to create greater access to the environment for everyone. Um, and so... Creating greater access to for everyone is, is quite key or quite important in the sense that not everyone is privileged to have access to those to those spaces. Well, most people live in, in very poor quality environments, what we call deprived um what we call the multiple Depri- deprivation index. These communities have got very poor environments. And so trying to create spaces that people can have access to um, for their health and well being is quite important. What the government is trying to do. So that's what the landscape review is all about.
0: Thank you so much, Maxwell, for sharing all of your knowledge today. It's been absolutely fascinating. It's been an education in itself.
1: Yeah, well, I, I don't know what I've been saying, whether I'm making sense or not. because for-
0: <laughs> <laughs> No, you are definitely making sense. And I've been making notes. I've got so many books I'm going to go away and look up. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maxwell. We've loved having you on the podcast today. For anybody interested in Maxwell's books, we'll make sure they're in the notes of this episode.
1: Thank you, Laura. And thank you to all those who are listening. Um, I hope you go out walking and keep walking. And um, I wish you all the best. Stay strong. Stay positive. That's what life is all about. It's about being happy.
0: Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.